Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. The husband of a woman who died in a hospital in Ireland has told this program she would still be alive today if doctors had agreed to terminate her pregnancy. He says that 31-year-old Savita Halapavana was in agonizing pain and suffering a miscarriage, but told that she couldn't have an abortion until the baby's heart stopped. On October 28, 2012, a pregnant Indian woman died in an Irish hospital. Her death shocked not only a nation, but people all over the world. The circumstances of her final days outraged the Irish public. I think the fact that so many people have come out during the week on Wednesday when we learned about her death and then again today just shows um, the anger and outrage um, in this country at the way another woman has been treated. This outrage launched a movement that would eventually play a pivotal role in a recent historic referendum announcement. But who was Savita Halapanavar and how did she die? They, that morning when they walked into Galway University Hospital, had no idea of the kind of constitutional legal history that they were walking into um, and what a mess they were walking into and the kind of really catastrophic impact it was going to have on, on their lives. Well, if the case would have happened in the UK, the first thing we would have offered is the termination of pregnancy. Some of the people here, they still cry when we talk about her, even after five years. I'm Danielle Stevens, and this is Savita's story. Savita Halapanavar was a 31-year-old, originally from the Bangalore region in India. She moved to Galway, a university city known for its culture on the west coast of Ireland, with her husband Praveen. She was in the middle of obtaining her licence to practice dentistry in Ireland when she found out she was pregnant. At the same time, I was studying journalism in Dublin. At that time, I had started taking an interest in international news that focused on women's rights. And I have to admit this, I was naive enough to think that Irish society had moved on leaps and bounds in comparison to others. But then Savita's story broke on November 14th. At 17 weeks pregnant and during a visit from her parents, she started experiencing back pain and decided to get checked out at Galway University Hospital. A week later, Savita died from complications resulting from septicemia which developed after she was refused a termination by the Irish doctors, despite the fact she was miscarrying. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weather report. Well, today with the local time is approaching five minutes tonight. As an Irish woman, I wanted to know how on earth this could have happened. As the weeks went on, 
more and more information came out about what Savita had gone through. Kitty Holland is the social affairs correspondent for the Irish Times. She was the journalist who first broke the story of Savita's death and the author of Savita, the tragedy that struck a nation. I flew to Ireland to meet Kitty at the Irish Times building in Dublin, where she explained how the story first made its way to her. How did you become involved with the Savita? One of the first things I asked her was whether or not Savita and Praveen had any idea about the issues surrounding abortion in Ireland? No, they. it seems that they d- didn't. Um, and indeed, the Indian community in Galway seems to have not been fully aware. Um, and I suppose that's part of... Uh, Part of why the reaction to um, what happened to them was so huge as well, that Ireland um, in you know 2012 was a place where um, we'd come through the Celtic Tiger. I mean, there was, we were in recession time, I suppose, then, but we had become a country that was very much, you know, on the global stage. There were a lot of multinationals coming here. We seemed like a very modern, modern vibrant country where a lot of people were coming to make lives here um, and a very Western country. So they, that morning when they walked into Galway University Hospital, had no idea of the kind of constitutional legal history that they were walking into um, and what a mess they were walking into and the kind of really catastrophic impact it was going to have on, on their lives. Hello. Hi, Dr. Prasad. Hi. Hi, it's Danielle here from The Guardian. How are you? Hi. One of the people I really wanted to talk to was Dr. Sivior Prasad, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Galway. He was a good friend of Savita and Praveen, and after reading Savita's medical notes, he realised that this wasn't a usual case of death by sepsis. He went on to lead the group that eventually brought Savita's story to Kitty. I started off by asking him, what was Savita like? Oh, she's uh, she's very artistic. Uh, she was very artistic the woman, you know. Um, she was big into dancing, choreography, that type of cultural activities. Very friendly, and everybody liked her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was particularly fond of children. And um, whenever we had a cultural program, she would. Uh, take uh, kids and teach them uh, dances and so on and so forth and make them dresses. So she was quite into it and she wouldn't miss an occasion. Praveen rang Dr. Prasad late at night on Friday, October 26th, five days after Savita first went into hospital, to tell him what was happening and to ask him, as a medical professional, if he could give any advice. So Saturday, myself and my wife went in. And uh, in intensive care, they don't uh, allow uh, visitors. I had a brief uh, visit inside. She was already on intubator and multiple uh, medical uh, gadgets. Coming from medical background, I could see the vital signs and all that, you know, on the machines. And... uh, I kind of knew that she wasn't going to make it at that stage. It must have been quite difficult for you knowing uh, what you did about the medical profession and trying to support and maybe comfort Praveen at the same time. 
I mean, you must have felt quite helpless, but what did you do to help him in this situation? Well, what happened was that Saturday, uh, everybody came to know about it. So there were at least uh, 35, 40 of us outside the intensive care unit. Mm. So we were all comforting each other, giving hope. That's all you can do, you know. I mean, I knew <laughs> that she won't make it, but you can never exclude a slim chance. So I was, I was telling Praveen that she, she'll pull through. She's young. She's a healthy girl, and uh, she's receiving uh, good care in the intensive care unit. Um, so on so forth. There were a lot of people crying and uh, Praveen was unconsolable, you know. He couldn't go back to his own house, uh, so Praveen stayed with one of his other friends near the hospital. I remember uh, he couldn't even talk to him, he was very silent, crying on and off, and um, he didn't eat for, I think, two or three days. When you first started looking into this, you talked to your solicitor. Um, you and a group of Savita's friends ended up going to the media. What was it that you were trying to do? Oh, we were trying to highlight this issue because all of us came from India where since 1971, there is the Medical Practitioners Act which allowed termination of pregnancy in a wide range of situations. And it's it's freely available in India. And we, none of us could believe such a ruthless restriction. You know, it doesn't make sense. The law here in Ireland is ridiculous. Um, so we wanted to highlight that issue. After she died, Praveen brought Savita's body home to India. While he was away, Dr. Prasad sought legal advice and obtained Savita's medical notes. It must have been From these notes, Dr. Prasad was convinced that Savita died unnecessarily, and so he passed them on to Kitty Holland. Kitty was then able to piece together a timeline of what exactly happened to Savita during her seven days in hospital. Was a place where, um, After a second visit to Galway University Hospital on Sunday, October 21st, Savita and Praveen were told the devastating news that a miscarriage was almost inevitable. Her consultant, Dr. Catherine Asprey, then sent her for an abdominal scan at 8.25 on the morning of Monday, the 22nd of October, during which there was still a fetal heartbeat present. These two issues, in conjunction with each other, would prove detrimental to Savita's life. So inevitable miscarriage obviously means you know, a miscarriage is inevitable and the, the, the pregnancy cannot be saved. But because the fetal heartbeat, the fetus or the unborn baby's heartbeat was still beating away inside, the pregnancy was still alive. and that there couldn't be an intervention to terminate it or abort it because at that point Savita was still a healthy woman um, and you know they would have been killing a, killing a, a life and there was no real reason to as far as the constitution was concerned. 
And as it's as it dawned on her that she was absolutely helpless and indeed that her husband was absolutely helpless. Um, and if you want to be charitable to the doctors, they were absolutely helpless. Um, so she's she's lying there. She's completely vulnerable. She's at the absolute mercy of the Irish Constitution, effectively. And uh, yeah, it must have been absolutely terrifying for her. And as a medically trained woman to kind of really know, I mean, some of the doctors spoke about that in the inquest that she obviously knew what she was talking about. One of the house officers one night said that she spoke in medical terminology to him so she knew what she was so she must have known what was going on mm, I don't know if that was much comfort to her that she may have known I uh, probably not I mm. mean you might feel you've got some kind of knowledge and insight into what's happening but if you know if your knowledge and insight is really terrifying mm. yeah not much comfort on Tuesday 22nd of October at 8 20 in the morning Savita asked her doctor if she could be given some medication that would help speed up the miscarriage Her request was refused several times throughout the week. When she later asked a nurse why... So this was um, a uh, midwife, one of the managers on the ward actually, um, and her name was Anne-Marie Burke. And she, on one of the days, uh, was in with Savita and her friend Merdulla, who was keeping her company while Pravin brought her parents back to the airport in Dublin. And they were saying, why can't we have this termination? Why are we lying here? This is ridiculous. And um, Amory Burke apparently said to her, did say to her, she gave evidence about it in the inquest, that um, she said it's a Catholic thing. This is a Catholic country and it's a Catholic thing. How it was meant and how I actually thought it was probably meant at the time was a kind of way of trying to explain in a kind of really shorthand way to people who didn't know Ireland um, and the kind of the nuances and the intimacies of the Irish way why she couldn't have the determination. And it's just saying, look, it's a Catholic thing. And she probably said, look, I'm sorry. This is just the way it is here. When was it that Praveen or Savita realised that maybe mistakes had been made or that there was something not right with what was going on? You know, on? I don't know if... Well, I mean, Praveen knew Savita was in big trouble, I suppose, from about... She went into hospital on a Sunday and she died the following Saturday morning. I mean, Praveen would have known she was in big trouble from about Wednesday evening, Thursday, when she was in intensive care. But I don't know if he realised that mistakes, serious lapses in the quality of the care that she was getting until kind of the inquest and until, you know, the evidence started to come out. So there were things that, you know, he wouldn't have known about. Um, And one of the um, midwives did say that on the Tuesday, which is where she began to really go downhill Tuesday night, Mm. the Savita on Tuesday, the beginning of that shift, was one of the most well and healthy women on the ward. And there were like 14 women on the ward. You know, it was then going into Wednesday morning that she started to have a fever and one of the night doctors, who was the one who recognised that she had medical training, he diagnosed um, that she had chorioamnionitis, which is an inflammation of her um, uterine membranes and um, very serious. And he, uh, di- he gave her some antibiotics um, and he told the registrar at when she came on shift, who was with her consultant, Dr. Asprey. So there was this registrar called Dr. Anne Helps. And he told her that um, I think she has chorioamnionitis. He had written it on, the, on her notes. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, this wasn't brought to Dr. Asprey's attention. And Dr. Asprey didn't read the back page of the notes. 
Savita's then continuing to deteriorate, continuing to get sick into late into Wednesday morning, coming up to Wednesday lunchtime, Wednesday afternoon, and then she's she's getting really, really sick. And her blood pressure is collapsing. Mm. And the, her falling blood pressure wasn't reported to her, to her consultant either. So her consultant then becomes aware that this is getting really serious at about, apparently about one in the afternoon, and told the inquest that she thought about terminating the pregnancy but had to go and look at the law then she had to go and get a second opinion then the second opinion the um, more senior person in obstetrics had to think about the law as well but she was dotting the i's and crossing the t's you know making sure it was okay to intervene and they did decide then about two o'clock that we would they'd bring her down to theater and terminate the pregnancy So then she was brought down to theatre and she spontaneously delivered a, a girl. And then she was brought up to the high dependency unit and then intensive care where, you know, we know what happened. She just got sicker and sicker. So then on the morning of Sunday, the 28th of October... A week after she comes in, unfortunately, Savita passes away. Just talk me through her final moments. So that was early hours of Sunday morning. Through Saturday into Saturday, she had become very, uh, her body had become, and she's all in a coma at this stage, but she was had become very distended, swollen, hard to touch. Um, so obviously her body was just filling up with poison. I and mean, it just must have been horrific for Praveen to see. And he was going down to the hospital chapel to pray. And when he came back at about midnight, a nurse came out looking for him. And um, she ran up to him and she said, will you come with me? I think I think we're losing her. And he says he came in with um, the nurse who was holding his hand. And she said, are you OK to be with her for her last minutes? And he came in and uh, he says there were four nurses working on her and pumping and I suppose doing what they could. And another nurse, one of the nurses left the bed and came over to her and um, said, you you know what's happening? And uh, he said, I think so. And she said, yeah, she's dying. Savita Halepanaver died at nine minutes past one on Sunday, October 28th a week after first displaying symptoms of back pain. Following her death, inquiries were launched to determine if the outcome could have been avoided. Something we'll hear more about after this short break. If there's going to be deterioration of the health, which is a permanent deterioration of the health, or death, then they should allow termination. So I wasn't very satisfied. I openly expressed that. Also, we'll be hearing from an Irish legal expert who will help break down the history of the laws governing abortion in Ireland. After Article 40.3.3 was introduced, there was no legislation. So the the Parliament of the Iraq has never legislated on the area at all. Um, So those ambiguities were left ambiguous. Um, and therefore it was only when cases arose that there was an opportunity um, or a requirement for the courts to, to look at these and, and try and clarify.
Hi, Charlie Phillips here. Hello. Our latest episode of The Story is a new idea from the documentaries team here at The Guardian, which we've called Doc Tales. Each episode will take our latest film and explore the people behind or within it. Whether it's the filmmakers or their subjects, we delve into the stories behind the story. And to celebrate our latest film, How to Make a Pearl, we hear from filmmaker Jason Hanasek about his subject, John, who lives his life in the dark. He describes when he has had too much light, he will burn. What I live on here, I have a feeling of hope that I will get out of here. But uh, that feeling of hope also carries me. If I don't get out, you know, I don't get out. And I think that that's that's what purling is, is to bring things that are stuck really way down deep to make something beautiful so that those can come back up, so to bring the grit from just being... To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts or search the story on your favourite podcast app. And to watch the film, head over to theguardian.com forward slash documentaries. Welcome back to the story. I'm Danielle Before the break, we heard about the death of Savita Halapanavar, a young Indian woman who died after being denied a termination in an Irish hospital. Her husband Praveen was inconsolable. He had lost a daughter and his wife in the space of a week, and he couldn't understand why. After she died, there were three separate inquests to determine what happened in the lead-up to her death. The next station is Tooting Broadway. I'm uh, Sabaratnam Arukumaran. I'm Emeritus Professor at St. George's University of London. Professor Sir Sabaratnam Aral Kumaran is an emeritus professor at St. George's University in London, and he chaired the Irish Health Service Executive's inquiry into Savita's death. I started off by asking him what the focus of the HSE inquiry was. Well, they wanted to learn lessons as to how they could have prevented this death. Uh, most of the time, the hospital itself um, makes inquiry and provides recommendation, but they thought um, the lessons could be extended to other hospitals in Ireland as well. In addition, there was a public outcry about the whole situation. So I think they put together, uh, they decided to have an external inquiry. So let's go through your report. Putting the issue of abortion aside... There were a couple of or several mistakes made by the doctors and nurses that were in charge of Savita's care. Could you go through some of these mistakes? Well, first of all, Savita came with a history. She had some lower abdominal pain and a bag of membranes were bulging. She pushed it inside and she went to the hospital. The doctor and the midwife, they examined her from outside, but they did not use a speculum to examine the vagina. So if they would have put the speculum, they would have realized there's a bulging bag of membranes. So that was the first omission. The second uh, problem was the 
doctor who was on duty ordered a white cell count, which is to say that there was an infection. The report came, which was indicating there's a possible infection. The count was about 16,000 about the pregnancy range. Neither the doctor who ordered, nor the doctor who came on duty, nor the midwives looked at the report. If they would have seen that report, then they might have followed up with some additional investigations, or when the pulse rate went up, they would have done further tests. So that was the second mistake. The third, she ruptured the membranes, and after that, at that gestation, 19 plus weeks, the prognosis is very poor and there's a high chance of infection. So they decided to put on erythromycin, which is an antibiotic. And uh, despite the fact that she had symptoms like feeling cold, nausea, vomiting, they did not connect that this could be the sign of sepsis. So sepsis should have been flagged earlier? Much earlier. And even subsequently, the pulse rate remained about 95 to 100, over 100. Despite that, they didn't take any action because there was no temperature which came on much later. So there was considerable delay. Although the the day before she went into septic shock, the morning, early hours, she had a very high pulse, nearly 160, 170. She had a temperature, she had a pulse milling discharge, but the next day... When they did the ward round, somehow or other the false smelling discharge part was not gathered by the consultant doing the ward round. Somehow or other that was missed. And there is a test called the serum lactate, which gives some idea that she's in severe, severe sepsis. And uh, the blood was taken and the doctor thought he's going to send it, but it should be done in the blood gas machine in the ward, but he unfortunately sent it to the lab and they didn't do it. From his report, Professor Sir Aral Kumaran was able to determine that once in ICU, Savita received very good care. However, a considerable lack of communication between doctors, nurses, consultants and others before she reached ICU had a serious impact on her outcome. Despite several warning signs that Savita was developing sepsis, it wasn't flagged early enough. Examinations were carried out inadequately, important medical tests were done, but either no one looked at the results or the results were never there to begin with, because the blood sample was sent to the wrong place to be tested. Then there was the issue of when it was legally safe to carry out a termination. Even after they found her, she has a high pulse, she had high fever, they were checking the baby's heartbeat that morning and they found the heartbeat is there, so they decided they would wait for some time. But on Monday, the 22nd of October, according to Savita's medical notes, the phrase inevitable miscarriage was recorded, but there was still a fetal heartbeat. Why wasn't the inevitability of a miscarriage enough for doctors to carry out a termination? That is the paradox about the regulations, the legal requirements that you should protect the fetus. As long as the fetal heart is present, they will wait for natural miscarriage rather than trying to induce and cause uh, what we would call as abortion. Because according to the Irish law, if somebody challenges and say to the doctor, you did an abortion when the baby was alive and that it was not necessary, then they would send her to jail for 13 years. 
So the doctor was rather scared about that consequence. She could have consulted somebody else, but it, by the time she consulted, it was late. Yeah, I mean, fast forward to Wednesday the 24th, it was recorded that Dr. Asprey, which was her consultant at the time, considered a termination. Would this have been legal at that time? Well, according to the legal, there's confusion about it because even after the inquiry, I asked various, uh, about, I don't know, about six or eight QCs to give their view. Some were saying, yes, it is not against the law, some saying it's against the law. So there was confusion about that. So one of the recommendations from my committee was that the legal fraternity should get together with the medical community and they should clarify the situation and also be recommended that if there is a threat to life, then termination should be allowed. Medical personnel have no difficulties in obeying clear legislation and medical regulations, but we are not trained for the complexities of constitutional interpretation, nor should we reasonably expect it to be. It is difficult for a doctor to function if you're saying, this is the point you have to do the termination to avoid death, because the picture, the medical illness can suddenly change, whether it is sepsis, whether it is severe heart disease, whether it's some other problem. So if there's going to be deterioration of the health, which is a permanent deterioration of the health, or death, then they should allow termination. So I wasn't very satisfied. I openly expressed that. You've worked in several countries as an obstetrician during your career. How would Savita's case have been dealt with in other countries? where abortion laws maybe aren't so restrictive? Well, if the case would have happened in the UK, the first thing we would have offered is a termination of pregnancy based on the fact that a 19-20 weeks fetus at that stage infected is not going to survive. The chance of survival is less than 2%, 5%, something like that. But in the meantime, the mother will be at risk. So finally, we'll lose the mother and the baby. But if we would have terminated and removed the infected fetus, then the chance of survival for the mother goes up. So we would have terminated in the UK, and it would have been most likely the same in most countries, unless there is a severely restrictive abortion law, like in Ireland. If we look to the results of your inquiry, could it be said that Savita would still be alive today if a termination was offered to her when she requested it? Yeah. There was no question about that. She had some sepsis, but she hasn't gone into the stage of severe sepsis or septic shock. So if she would have terminated early and started with antibiotics, she would have survived. Savita's case was not the first time the issue of abortion had been brought to the Irish people's attention. Over the last several decades, cases related to the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution have cropped up and the courts have had to decide how to interpret the wording of Article 40.3.3. Now, the President uh, has yet to sign the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, and it awaits his signature before it becomes part of Bunruk Naharan. It will read as follows. The state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its law to respect, and so far as practicable by its laws, to defend and to vindicate that right. They're the words that were before you, and you voted two to one. I'm joined first by... In 1983, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of Ireland was signed into law. 
It recognised the equal right to life for both a mother and her unborn child. It effectively made it impossible for the Irish government to legislate on allowing abortion unless under exceptional circumstances. To help me understand where exactly the law stands on the topic of abortion, I went to see Owen Carolyn at the Law Library in Dublin. Carolyn is a professor of law at University College Dublin and a practising barrister in cases interpreting constitutional law. Firstly, I asked... Why was a referendum on this issue ever put to the Irish people in the first place? Different views about it, but the Supreme Court in a case in 2010 called Roach discussed this a little bit and and, and they said they felt there were two things that were at play in 1983. Um, One were developments in English law. So in 1939, there'd been a ruling by an English court that had said that um, if a doctor in good faith had acted to protect or preserve the life of a woman, um, it wouldn't be unlawful. And that was in relation to the same act and the same statute that applied in Ireland. So the same wording had been interpreted by the English courts to allow uh, termination in some situations. The other development was an American development, um, Roe versus Wade in the US in the 1970s. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Um, the US Supreme Court had interpreted the constitutional right to privacy. Um, to provide for uh, terminations in certain situations. And Ireland had a constitutional right to privacy. So the concern that was expressed um, by some groups was that either the Oireachtas or the courts might follow that approach. So Article 40.3.3 was brought in, but almost immediately people realised there could be a potential flaw to the amendment. After Article 40.3.3 was introduced... There was no legislation, so the, the Parliament of the Iraq has never legislated on the area at all. Um, so those ambiguities were left ambiguous. Um, and therefore it was only when cases arose that there was an opportunity um, or a requirement for the courts to, to look at these and, and try and clarify. Um, so the first major one was probably the X case um, in 1992. The High Court ruled in mid-February that a 14-year-old Dublin girl who claimed she'd been raped couldn't go to England for an abortion. The girl had become pregnant after having sex with a 44-year-old South Dublin businessman, the father of a school friend. The issue in that case revolved around, uh, it was accepted by the court there was a threat to her life that she was suicidal. Um, So there was a threat to her life on one side and a threat to the unborn on the other. And what the court decided in that case um, was that under Article 40.3.3 it was permissible to have a termination where there was a a real and substantial threat to the life rather than the health of the mother and where a termination was the only way um, of protecting that life. So the X case clarified that you, you could, as a constitutional matter, have terminations in Ireland in, within those particular parameters. Ironically, the X case did what proponents of the Eighth Amendment had feared most. By judging in favour of letting the young girl have a termination, the Supreme Court had interpreted Article 40.3.3 in such a way as to allow terminations for women in Ireland. What it didn't do was allow most of these women to have abortions on Irish soil. As Owen explains, the X case highlighted another issue. One of the ambiguities arising from that was the court had said that, but again, there was no legislation after it. So there was still an uncertainty about, well, how do you know if you fall within those parameters? 
Very soon after Savita died, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act was enacted in 2013. Can you give me an outline of what this is and what does it mean? Well, essentially the 2013 Act fills in some of those gaps. So the, the what the Supreme Court and, and other people have been saying ar- around, you know, we know termination is permissible in these two situations where there's a, there's a physical or mental threat that's a real and substantial. Um, and it, it left those, obviously it operated within those parameters, but it provided more details around how that operated so who would have to sign off on it um, who would you have to ask what process would you need to go to um, so you know if it's a physical threat two people can cert- two um, medical people can certify if it's a mental threat three have to certify um, and you know if they say no then there's an appeal process so it, it, it's, it essentially lays out principles and procedures around um, how that system should operate As we heard from Owen there had been several times in the past when cases involving the prospect of an abortion were raised in the courts however this story was different. When people in Ireland and around the world heard about Savita, there was uproar. I was curious, why was this case so special? Well, I think there were a few things. Kitty Holland again. I mean, uh, there was, as I said before, the timing of when it happened in big, bright modern Ireland, yeah. um, which really shocked and stunned a lot of people who were kind of blissfully unaware of uh, the harsh of Ireland um, and what makes it tick in some way. Um but there was also the fact that we had had, as you say, we'd had the X case, we'd had the D case, we'd had the C case, we'd had you know all these cases. We did ABC versus Ireland, we had the Misty and D versus Ireland, and we had so many cases. But they were all um, just known as referred to by letters. We never really got to see their family or them or names or anything. Um, some of the names have emerged since. But with Savita's Halapanavar's case, we had her face big, bright, beautiful face on the paper. And we had uh, her friends talking about what kind of a woman she was. She was very much undeniably a human being who had been vibrant and wonderful and had died as a result of uh, of the Eighth Amendment. There was also the fact that she wasn't Irish, which I think um, there was a lot of um, shame. You know, it was one thing doing it to our own, you know, our own dirty linen to our own, you know, the way we treat our own family is one thing. But when it was a guest in our country um, making a life here, I think there was uh, like a lot of horror and shame and like, oh, my God, I can't believe we've done this to someone. And the Catholic, the, the woman, Amory Burke, saying it's a Catholic thing. It just crystallised it so much, you know, that all those things, uh, this is Ireland, this is Catholic, this is, uh, you know, you didn't know this about Ireland, but this is actually the way we tick. How much of a loss was Savita to, to her community, to her friends? Some of the people here, they still cry when we talk about her, even after five years. Every time somebody flashes a photograph, somebody gets upset, you know? So do you feel Savita has gotten justice? Not yet. What will it take? What will it take? (laughs) I mean, as far as medical conditions are concerned, they should be left to the patient and the doctor. That's it. That's the bottom line. If you had a cancer or if you're having a heart attack, you you don't need a law to tell you what to do. Doctors have to do what's the best medical practice. 
that's what we need we, we don't need the state or the church interfering uh, into the health of a pregnant woman In the aftermath of Savita's death, thousands of people have taken part in dozens of protests across Ireland. Groups both in favour and against repealing the Eighth Amendment have campaigned fervently. In the end, the government had to act. We know that thousands of Irish women, women from every single county in Ireland, travel abroad for abortions every year. We know that women obtain abortion pills through the post to end their pregnancies without any medical support or counselling or supervision. At the end of January 2018, the Irish Taoiseach, or Prime Minister Leo Varadkar, announced that a referendum would take place in late May. The Irish people will have the opportunity to vote on whether or not to repeal the Eighth Amendment and replace it with something else, or to leave the Constitution as it is. Savita Halepanavar should never have had to die. However, her death was the final catalyst that made the Irish people say, something has to change. This episode of The Story was presented and produced by me, Danielle Stevens. Additional sound design was done by Pascal Wise. Max Sanderson was the executive producer, with additional editorial help from Aidan McGill. The head of audio at The Guardian is Jason Phipps. Thanks to Kitty Holland of the Irish Times, Dr. Sivior Prasad, Professor Owen Carolyn, and Professor Sir Sabaratnam Aral Kumaran. A special thanks also to Declan Connellan at the Irish Times for accommodating us with the studio, and also to Det McLaughlin and Peter Boylan who provided invaluable time and input during the development of this project. This episode of the story was commissioned as part of the Guardian's Inequality Project, which is supported by the Ford Foundation. If you have any questions, feedback or story ideas, please send us an email to podcasts at theguardian.com. And if you want to find out more about Savita's story, We'll include a link to Kitty's book in the episode's description on the Guardian website.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.